0: The Sabbatu, the Hatu, Summa, Sibu, Namo Sambu, the Hatu, the Hatu, Namo Summa, the Buddha, the Moat, the Sabbatu, the Wondering what uh, I can bring to you today Uh, that can be helpful since uh, people have been very generous in making me feel welcome, bringing me to this place, and naturally, I have an interest in in responding by bringing you something that might be useful in your lives. So, it's not trying to lecture you or dictate to you or be stern or tell you how you should be. Uh, try to offer something from our own experience that you may find useful So what you find useful you can keep with you what you don't find useful you can just let it blow out the window that's fine with me <laughs> so um, yes of course uh, my recommendation always is you that we have some time every day when we practice meditation just as we've been doing in order to give ourselves the fullness of our mind so often in this day and age it seems to me that we are we only use a part of what we the mind, so we think that's all the mind is, and the part we use is fundamentally the thinking mind the thinking mind, the organizing mind, the planning mind the remembering mind, the figuring it out mind the duty mind, what I should do, what I am going to do mind the judgment mind decides how everybody else is and it always puts things into boxes and arranges them and we can spend our lives just shift, moving these boxes around and creating new boxes. You see someone, you put them in a box. Yeah. <laughs> so it gets very busy because there's, I think, no end to the amount of boxes and things you can think about. You can think of whether the moon's made of cheese, you can wonder about the, where the the cosmos began from, you can think about just about everything, and uh, your mind can spin around around in circles. This is only one part of the mind, Uh, but because uh, we're busy, and we live in these developing and developed societies where the emphasis is on technology, and getting things done, working, organizing, and so forth, that's the part we develop. So you get rather stressed by it all, because though it's useful, it doesn't, give you regeneration, refreshment which has to come from the other parts of your mind. And if you don't know this then you tend to seek refreshment in sports, entertainment, television, eating, drinking and so on. But uh, that's an expensive way to do it. It's also not a very fulfilling way to do it. Because you're always leaning on something, dependent on something. Meditation gives you the chance to find your own source of well-being on your own, free any (laughs) time available. And so this we open up the other aspects of the mind. The first that's perhaps quite obvious is the heart, we might say the emotional centre. To learn to be loving and gentle and peaceful and patient with ourselves and with others. We have this capacity. The heart is not really about fixing anything or organising anything or putting things in boxes, the heart is about relating to how we feel. It's a relationship experience. So no matter what I think about you, also I have to relate to you as a human being. And so it gives us a much wider perspective. You're not just a cook, a driver, a secretary, a manager. You're also a human being like me who experiences pleasure, pain, worries sickness, as friends, relatives and so forth and so we have a feeling for the wholeness of a being and right now how are we going to be with each other in a way that's open and uh, attentive and respectful. So this, this aspect of mind is very important to develop and developing it towards yourself. How do you look after yourself? What is hero welfare? And the thinking mind can immediately jump up with an answer, but the heart doesn't have verbal answers. It has more emotional answers, which means if you really ask the question, "What's my welfare?" and take it to heart, look carefully, give yourself a few moments, you probably think, wow, "I need to look after myself." It's not that specific; but it's giving you a general inclination. I need to respect my own goodness. Um, In a a, a, uh, business, in a competitive society, we're always recognising how we should be get ahead, and be better, and compete, and be the top, or be what other people want us to be. And that feeling always gives you the feeling it's never quite good enough. You're never a quite good enough child. You're never quite good enough teenager. You're never quite good enough adult. You're never quite good enough at work. And guess what? That's going to continue. <laughs> because whatever we do, we haven't really dealt with the fundamental feeling of not quite good enough. And where does that end? That ends in loving kindness. You don't have to be that good. You know, how good do you have to be before you can love yourself before you can look after yourself yeah. and you can recognize that sometimes people look after themselves with less care than they look after their, their pets you know when you have a pet cat you have a cat in the monastery the cat doesn't keep the precepts doesn't meditate it's, it's lazy sleeps, eats, that's all it does everyone loves it because love isn't dependent upon when you deserve it or when you're good enough it's dependent upon just this sense of empathy sharing and realizing it's better to love ourselves and other people than to not love them (laughs) because if you don't love them you feel fearful, uncertain anxious, worried you know What's that feel like? So, when you come into your heart, it's very simple that you have the choice to either experience kindness, compassion, rejoice in other people's welfare, or an equi- a sense of allowing people to be the way they are, or we can feel worried, judgmental, make comparisons, feel inadequate, complain, you yeah? which do you want to do? And when you, so often we find ourselves incapable of, of controlling our feelings. The heart is, still has these strong feelings, so we just say, well, um, you should be. You should be loving. You should be, you should be grateful. You should be compassionate. Yeah? You should be more peaceful. And after a while, that becomes another thing you're not very good at. Another thing you failed being—you weren't very loving, you weren't very generous, you weren't very grateful, you weren't very compassionate. So there you are—you're a failure again. <laughs> you weren't good enough with that either. But with this quality of heart, we're not—we're looking at how we relate to what we're experiencing. When we feel jealous or fearful or or angry or disappointed, and, oh. How does that feel? And can you just uh, be loving and patient towards that feeling in yourself? Say, you're okay now. Just take your time, breathe in, breathe out, relax. Because there's this real understanding this gives you that all the negative qualities of the heart come from confusion, ignorance, agitation They don't come from a clear, steady place. So what we have to do first of all is establish this place of clarity, steadiness, generosity of heart. And then these negative forces begin to disappear by themselves. And this takes us to the third aspect of mind, which I'm calling the quality of presence. Or sometimes it seems to be almost something to do with your, your body. Uh, So, and this is something you can recognise when when people are uh, panicking or frightened or agitated you don't give them a lecture on how they should be if somebody's in a panic you don't say, well, what you need to be is calm down Uh, what you really should be is quiet and peaceful don't you understand that panic is an impermanent condition what you do is maybe put your hand on their shoulder and say, let's go for a little walk together you're all right, you're all right. And you just physically touch them and bring this physical quality uh, of, of connected, of a presence, of being present with somebody, of sharing time with them, of saying, I'm here too. You know? So a friend of mine, she, worked, she offers to help dying people. This is a very good practice because when somebody's dying, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't stop them dying. You can't say you shouldn't die. <laughs> you can't say, to a, you, know, you, you know, if a mother's dying and she's out dying of cancer and she's 45 years old, you can't say, you're not allowed to die, you have to look after your children. You're a bad mother. You're not allowed to die yet. She's going to die. Whether she should do, whether it's irresponsible, whether it leaves her children in a bad state or not, there's nothing she can do about it. So you don't you don't say, well, cheer up, look on the bright side, you'll be reborn in the Western Paradise or something like that. What she do is, she says she just goes to these places and sits with people, sits beside them, maybe holds a hand, sits there, holds a hand, they go for a little walk together, or she strokes a hand. Person feels loved. And they feel they can relax. They feel they can let go. And then they can die peacefully. They can pass away peacefully. It's such an important thing, this quality of of a bodily presence. And it's not really about so much about physical contact. It's about almost such a body has an energy that knows senses when you're... uh, when you're calm patient with it, rather like animals. When you see a horse or, a, or an animal, like a wild animal, if you're, if you're physically steady and calm and centered in yourself, the animal will, will relax. If you feel panic, the animal will pick up your fear because they have extremely intelligent bodies that can pick up these nervous energies. Now, we also have that. We're animals, too, on one level. But we have these other aspects of mind that sit on top of that so that sometimes we don't really use it. Until maybe when you meditate and you come into a place and you can feel the tension in your body. You can feel the tension in your chest, in your face, in your eyes. What's that? And you start to relax it. As you relax your stress and tension in your physical body, your mind starts to widen and open up you feel a little bit confused at first, your emotions start moving around, but you stay present, breathing in, breathing out, going into your body, gradually that begins to disappear, dissolve. Bodily presence, bodily intelligence. It's very, very fundamental. This friend of mine who works in the hospice one day, she said she had got a phone call and uh, at that time, that the hospital said so we have a mother here who is dying She has died and the baby that she just gave birth to is also dying can you come to the, the hospital? it's of course, so she comes to the hospital the mother is already dead the baby has just been born, the baby is also dying uh, so it's hardly been born, it's already dying and uh, the father is in a very distressed state, naturally enough, and uh, that my friend picks up the baby and says, well, at least I'll just, I'll just hold it so that even if it only lives for a few hours, this baby would have known one time that somebody held it, somebody offered it that quality of contact, somebody offered it that love through the body before the baby could think or anything, it just felt the sense of somebody else is there. So she held the baby gently and carefully, and the father came in to to see and he didn't know what to do. He said, Can I can I touch can I touch my baby? And the woman said, Well of course you can. So he, he brought his hand out and as he moved his hand towards this little baby, the baby sensed his presence and lifted its fingers up to touch. And this is a baby who's only a few hours old, but already its body knew that's my father. And already its body you, if I can just touch my father for a few moments, then, you know, I won't have come through this life pointlessly, I'll have made some contact. That's how valuable it is to make contact. To, and it's not about, you know, physically squeezing, it's just about the sense of knowing each other through our nerve endings, knowing each other through our sense of openness, non-defensiveness. Unfortunately most of the time people in the modern, this modern speedy world, we rush up, our energy rushes up into our heads. So sometimes you hardly feel your body, you know, you just feel your face, you feel your head, you feel your eyes, you feel the tension around your forehead, you feel this kind of churning sense in your guts. If you, your sense of your body presence is extremely agitated and lost, so you get this sense of tension, and what happens with that is that in order to stop the pain of that, you just close it down, so you start to just not even notice you have a body you know, you are just thoughts, a series of thoughts, and you, everything else shuts off and you're sitting behind a screen or behind a typewriter or in front of a program or something, and you're just ah these series of thoughts and ideas and it's a tremendous speed to it and your body is gone. So we close off. And then when it's like that, how do you relate to other people? You know, when you're in an office or you're rushing to work or you're in a traffic jam, do you think people are generous, kind, open, sympathetic? No, it's all, oh get out of my way, I've got to do this, yeah, see you later. Fine now, you know, the only, only time you meet another person is on your Is on your text message. On your telephone, you get a little message saying, Hello, see you at 6 o'clock, goodbye. That's that's human contact. (laughs) And then when we try to say, Well, how are we going to bring out around our welfare? All our head, all our thinking mind, the only answer it has is, You should. You should do this. You've just yeah. got to do that. you better do this. And you feel what that feels like. There's no quality of, of love or care or presence about that. It's always telling you what you've got to be, not saying where you are right now, how are you right now. There's no capacity to look after your own welfare or even check in how you're feeling. It's always telling you how you should be. Even when it comes to matters of the past. He's saying you should, uh, you should be a good mother, you should be a good husband, you should look after your mother, look after your grandmother, be grateful to your father, be grateful to your, your grandfather. And sometimes you don't feel grateful to them. <laughs> you know, if you, if you get the time and the moments to really think about it, you probably do. But often you find that, well, you know, he wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do. I don't feel grateful. I feel unhappy about it. I feel resentful, actually. <laughs> so then you feel guilty because you shouldn't feel resentful. You should just feel total gratitude to your parents. And then it says, well, you know, I'm not a very good son. or not a very good daughter. But actually, when you look at the emotions, you realize that they're so, they're so momentary and so reactive that you can love people and still feel irritated by them at the same time. I think... You know, you really irritate me, but I love you anyway. <laughs> because you recognise that the emotion is just relating to the particular incident that's happening right now. Yeah. So, you know, when your father tells you you can't do this, you can't have more money, you can't have fun, you've got to go to work now. You know, that's not a pleasant message to, to immediately. But then, if you if you consider it wisely, you look back and think. Yeah, he's right, you know, that's, that's a better thing for me. He's trying to make things look, look good for me. You know. The problem is that often we don't get the time of to go into our hearts and really consider things deeply. A long-term welfare. You know. So instead you get these messages from the, the thinking mind saying this is what you should be, this is what you should, ought to do, this is how to be better than you are. And after a while, something in your in your heart feels irritated by that because your body knows that all of that is taking you away from being present with yourself it's taking you away from the place where you can know yourself fully it's taking you away from the place where you can look after yourself fully it's taking you away from the place where you can live your own life truly properly, fully, clearly wisely and all that should be, ought to do, got to get on with is taking you away from the place where you can really respond fully from your own truth, from your own life from your own beauty, from your own clarity and otherwise you feel a bit fed up with all that and then you feel guilty about that because you shouldn't feel that (laughs) way so this is particularly one of the cases one of the situations where we are having in our societies where naturally you have children and people have to learn things, yeah. and you have different different extremes. <laughs> One extreme is the parent just controls the child, tells them everything they've got to do. Yeah. So in the old days, you know, you, you, your parents would arrange your marriage when you're six years old, or ten years old. That's what's going to happen. And this is the career you're going to have. You've got to do this. Yeah, so there's that way of doing it, and the parent is probably thinking this is for their welfare. They're only young, I know better than them, I'll, do, I'll act on their behalf and this is for their welfare. Yeah? And you have the other extreme, which you have more in the West, which is the child always knows best. You have to let the kid do what he wants to do. Yeah? So the kid can be rushing around, grabbing, doing what he likes, should parents are not allowed to correct them because that's repression, that's domination, that's controlling them, that's bad. So often you find that you get people, children who are very um, irresponsible, selfish, because that's the way it is for unenlightened beings. In both cases, what's really, you can see the extremes and the, and the uh, defects in both cases. Yeah. And the way, the simple way that the Buddha and the Buddhist teachings ask us to be with others is to be with others as you would like them to be with you. To be with others as you would like them to be with you. To relate to others as you would like them to relate to you. And to learn also to relate to others as you would best relate to yourself. And at first we don't know this, so this is why we have to meditate to find out what really does it mean to be a good parent to yourself? What does it really mean to be a good grandmother to your complaining mind? What does it mean to be a good friend to your unhappiness? To be a good support for your stress? What does it really mean? When you know that in yourself, then you can do it for others. What does it mean to be a good guide when your mind is rebellious and lazy? Yeah. So, a, you know, my mind can be rebellious and lazy And says, I don't want to I think, go to the morning meditation My monastery about 4.30, so getting up at 3.30 The alarm goes off and says, I don't want to get up <laughs> Why should I bother? I've done this for many. 30 years the other ones can do it. I'm getting old, I'm fed up with this. doing the same thing every day. And my, and my good friend in my mind says, yes, this is true. I know how it feels. But just see what it's like just to open your eyes. Is it that bad? No. Yeah. And uh, how much sleep do you really need? No. I'm okay. And then maybe you could just sort of just start to breathe in and breathe out feel what it's like to breathe in and breathe out. That's not too much, is it? Breathing and breathing out. Isn't it better when you breathe in and breathe out and you kind of you sit up? Because your breathing gets better. Yeah, that's true. I'll sit up, breathing and breathing out. Ah, and wouldn't you like to wash your face? Make you feel fresher? Yeah, I'll get up and wash my face. Okay, I'll get up and wash your face. It's cold, I'm going to put some clothes on. Okay, clothes on, washing my face, breathing in, breathing out. Wouldn't it be nice to go and share this with other people? Yeah, that's a good idea. And then I find myself going to the morning meditation with everybody else. (laughs) But instead of, you should be, you ought to be, it's your responsibility, what will people think of you if you don't do this? I'm saying, just gently, a moment at a time, what's for your welfare? And that's the good friend, the good guy, isn't it? So when you learn to be that for yourself, you learn, start to learn to be that with other people. It's like how you have to take a moment of time, You know, a moment of time, patiently. Okay. OK, you have an argument, you have a problem with me, you're disappointed with me, you're feeling very angry with me, OK, okay. Well, wouldn't it be better if we just sat down together Okay. And if you like to be angry, you could just take it slowly so I can hear it all. Don't be in a hurry when you're being angry. Just be angry in a slow, relaxed way. <laughs> so that you can really, you know, let it come out fully. So a person sort of sits down and more slow and relaxed. The anger starts to diminish already. And so I'd really like to hear all of it you know, so you feel open, you're not defending yourself, the person starts to feel less angry. They say, now, could you just please help me as to what, what is annoying you about me? They go, well, uh, you know, uh, well, mm, they think suddenly a lot of this disappeared. They say, well, you know, um, uh, I wish you didn't drive so fast. You go, oh, okay. How fast is too fast? Tell me, please help me. Oh. oh yeah, I can do that. Or, I wish you'd do the washing up someday. You Yeah, know, okay, I can do the washing up someday. That's fine. You know? Or you can say, well, I can do that. But if I do that, I won't be able to look after something else. You know? So when you really explain the position that you're in, a lot of these conflicts start to die away. The problem is, generally when somebody feels upset, they feel, well, I shouldn't, I just just hold that in, you know, so you hold in that disappointment, that irritation. And after a while that person makes you angry, you don't even want to talk to them. And every time you look at them, you remember this thing they did, and you don't think you don't want to talk to them. You think, well, she's so stupid and arrogant, anyway, I don't want to talk to her. So your mind starts to close down. And then when you finally talk to them, you have this immense outburst of confused feelings, the other person feels so frightened you can start defending themselves and say, Well, you can't talk to me like that, you don't realise how hard I've worked, and you never do this and that and the other sort of crash, you get the big conflict of attack and defence. Yeah? Because we haven't actually spent the time in knowing how to work with our own confusions and mistakes. What it takes. Patience. So notice when you when you're meditating and your mind drifts off and you wanders off to something that you shouldn't be thinking about right now, that's one of the places where you learn. Instead of, oh dear, no, stop doing that. Why are you thinking about this? This is silly, this is a waste of time. You never get enlightened this way, you know. <laughs> no, just stop stop notice that already you've already woken up you've already let go of it you've already dealt with it by waking up and noticing it the beautiful thing is that the quality of presence that is the fundamental foundation of meditation we call it mindfulness presence, full awareness it's actually never very far away all you need to do is remember that you're confused and already you're coming out of it. Already you say, oh that's confusion, it feels like that. Oh, isn't it interesting? And now where's the breathing? You know? Or where am I still steady? So already as soon as you notice something, you don't need to create a whole story about it, a whole judgment about it, just say, okay, Enough of that, let's get back to this. And this is this very gentle way of continuing encouraging yourself through non-aversion, through non-blame, through non-violence. Yeah. Violence towards yourself. Yeah. And if you stop that, then naturally these qualities of love, compassion, calm, composure, they come in because they are the natural state of the mind when it's present. It's a natural state. You don't have to create it. It's not something you should be. It's something you already are when you stop trying to be something else. (laughs) It's underneath what you think you are. It's there. So often our practice is almost like a return. A coming home. A coming back. To our truth, are coming back to our senses, are coming back to our wisdom, are coming back to our love, that we never really lost, we just kept forgetting how to stay in contact with that. We kept forgetting because we were so busy, we kept forgetting because we were so agitated and so full of what we, the ideas of what we should be all of the virtues, all of the precepts develop from this place of wisdom, of clarity, of compassion, of love you just need reminders as it's said, you know, we can look into all of the virtues of the Buddha the ten paramitas, the incredible virtues of the Buddha the miraculous powers of the Buddha immense series of virtues and powers and one day, Ananda, chief one well, of his chief disciples, his chief attendant, was saying, "The Buddha is so there's so many wonderful, marvelous things about the Buddha." And the Buddha said, "Oh yeah." And he said, "Yeah." The Buddha's birth was miraculous and marvelous. And you know, when the Buddha was born, the devas rejoiced. And he gave these wonderful examples of how amazing the Buddha was, amazing the Buddha was. And the Buddha said, "You know what's really amazing?" Said I can notice a thought when it arises, and a thought when it passes away. This is the most amazing, miraculous quality of a awareness. <laughs> is that it? That's it. <laughs> the rest of it is just dressing. The rest of it is just garnish. It's interesting. It's fantastic. You know it's amazing, it excites the mind but what really counts what's really important is you can feel a thought and a mood and emotion rise up with all its convictions and its stories and you can feel it pass away and you don't have to make anything out of it, that is miraculous that's everyday awakening this is what the Buddha encouraged us to do that you don't have to be so many things you don't have to be anything all you have to focus on is doing not being and the doing is this quality of opening and completing your mind bringing your whole mind into presence into balance with these effects that the world brings to us the memories the voices The social compulsions, the work energies that society brings to us. How to bring yourself into presence with them so you can handle them wisely when it's necessary and also know you can put them aside and go beyond. Go to a place of no coming, no going, no development, no decline, a place of peace or nirvana. This is the teaching in the Buddha take this to the place where there's the ending of sorrow the ending of death the ending of fear, the ending of loss the ending of regret, the ending of anxiety so this is a place you can't go further than this this is as far as you can go I call this the island of refuge and it's as far away as your ability Step back from your thoughts, your feelings and emotions. It's, it's not that far. Yeah. So in a meditation practice, this is just remember this. You don't have to even be that good a meditator. You don't have to have a whole developed system of technology and jargon. You just have to know for yourself, through experience how to handle and be with and relate to your own mind through your body through your heart through skillfulness through patience through care through attention so i'll this your reflection this evening this morning and if you uh, like to have a few moments to think or consider and if you have any questions or things you'd like to bring up i really happen to uh, uh, respond to that. Um, often you can't necessarily teach through words. Yeah. But you try to teach through through deeds, through actions. So you might take your child for a walk and say, "Let's spend some time just looking carefully, closely at, at a, a tree that we pass. Just that moment, let's look at this tree. Let's look at the flowers. Just just slow down so that when they when your attention stay still on one thing your quality of presence starts to open up by itself Mm. so steady attention and quality of clear, open intention will always bring you back to presence in a way this is what meditation is with children they can't necessarily sustain attention for very long you know for more than a minute or two (laughs) or one thing but you can just say, well, let's just look at this, or let's just feel this, or what does this really taste like? Yeah? So that you're getting to develop attention that's just curious, inquiring, not about greed, not about hatred, not about delusion, attention that's just based on really being present with something. And you often do that physically and also by doing it yourself. So we, uh, we have a, a, a camp for children every year, one of the monasteries, everyone, you have a children's camp. So children are encouraged to uh, be with nature, to uh, learn to chant, to, uh, to offer food to the monks and nuns. But it's always the sense of taking the time to really feel the quality of, of what they're doing, and that helps them to to come back into presence. Yes, my dear, when you were
1: This Ajahn, you were giving your job. It was very encouraging because it really sounds so simple that you just watch it, it just goes off and you have this uh, natural state. Uh, i like to ask, how is that we can recognize it? Because sometimes we may even feel it but we don't realize it. And then again, we start thinking again. And then on the other hand, uh, when you say that, when these things cause feelings come and pass away and the natural states of loving kindness and compassion are there uh, does it mean that at that time our departments are all gone or they're still there coming back again or do we have to keep on getting rid of this until we
0: naturally get this pure state Thank you. yeah well it's uh, I, I would say that it's not a, a movement from absolute defilement to absolute purity in one step (laughs) generally it's movement from being you know, having a few defilements taking place but some wisdom, some sense of I want to be free of this and then coming to places where the defilements are are noticeably eradicated so the the, how you recognise the quality of presence is of course uh, why the Buddha taught the four noble truths? because the quality of presence is when the sense of stress ceases. There's less stress in it. Yeah. So normally we notice things because of their stressfulness. We notice intensity. We notice uh, strong energies. You know, excitement, uh, anxiety, uh, planning You know, it's quite. But even in that in that sense. It's, you can feel even, even happiness is kind of stressful because it's kind of running through your nervous system it's got a demand to it it demands fulfilment, it demands more yeah? and unhappiness is also demanding so get rid of this, stop it, stop it being this way it's, it always applies pressure the pressure is because the mind is leaning upon an idea or a sensation so it's pressing on it yeah? and it's in this grip of being squeezed, of being pushed, of being pressurized. Um, in the technical language this means the quality of chitana or intention is, is being press, pressed, is being driven along. Now the, the less, as that lessens, as a sense of pressure lessens, this is associated with the quality of presence. So it's really, the subtlety of it is, it's the absence of, you know, of greed, hatred, delusions, the absence of worry, anxieties, the absence of strong feelings. So sometimes this is what makes it difficult because you can't feel it. But what you can, as you you tune in, so you do it gradually through meditation, and you start developing sensitivity to something like breathing in and breathing out, as the breath calms down, it becomes more and more subtle. You become more attuned to the quality of absence of pressure, of ease. And as you get used to it, this is really sweet. And then even with that, there's a subtle pressure to have more of it. Or so you you know, but then you begin to recognize always you look to the quality of where there's pressure or stress and where it stops. You move towards the stopping of it, and that's associated with uh, purity. I, to uh, add a little more to that, it's hardly a matter of a system or a technique, it's a matter of maturity. It's like when you're, when you're young. You are excited by sweets, you know, ice cream. By the time you're 25, you've grown out of it. Meditation is the way to grow up quickly. (laughs) So you don't have to wait so many years. You grow up quickly. So all the time you're feeling the qualities of excitement, of pleasure, of happiness. Wouldn't it be nice if one of those, like you get a new car? Don't like the feeling of that. Feels pressurized. Feels grasping. Don't like that. Let go of it. So, meditation is like how to go through 50 lifetimes in a, in, a, in, a few, in a few years. So, it's really a, a, a crash course in maturity. <laughs> so, that what happens is your taste begins to change. Your taste begins to change. It changes very good. For everyone, this is really what happens. no matter who they are or what they are one of the proven results is that the more you develop meditation in this way, the more you you develop maturity quickly you develop wisdom, develop equanimity, develop patience you don't decide to develop them, they happen by themselves and as you do that you become more attuned to isn't it nice just to sit here in silence? That's really nice. <laughs> Whereas, uh, you know, when I was in my 20s, I used to like to listen to music, listen to exciting music, jazz and rock and roll all the time. I went to Thailand, became a monk. For about a year and a half as a monk, all I could hear in my mind was these records playing. It's was like, Going on and on and on, the memory of all these, this music played by a in crystal clear detail. And I got so fed up with it. And then when I, I went back to England as a monk, uh, I thought, well, I wonder what those things sound like. And I listened to one record and thought, this just sounds sort of like somebody kicking dustbins around. <laughs> it's really a row. I really like the silence much better. And I had not decided it's just that the mind had grown by itself, in the case in three years, to the point where, "Ah, that's, that's for little, that's for young people. I've, I've passed that. You know. I don't need that. So it wasn't through moralizing or should be, it's just as a natural growth towards the, what gives you more fulfillment. We have this fundamental intuition towards our well-being. And that's what's always there for all human beings, we seek our well-being. It's the basic program that's already established from the moment you're born, to find what's your well-being. But uh, you you can trust it. But in meditation you get a good chance to really review everything in brief. You can review all the passions in brief and you you witness the cause and effect of them. And And something you come to the conclusion, this isn't what I want I want the quiet I feel better there and as you, as you tune into that then you, that quality of presence of, of steadiness, of stillness, of awareness becomes more something that your mind goes to more, more meddling it's a natural process yeah.
1: Just passing. There are some meditators or yogi who still he doesn't want to grow up. No. They don't want to mature. So they still stick to the everyday life. In that case, how do you teach them to realize that there's another happiness on the other side?
0: Well, I think in a way you can't teach anybody anything. <laughs> Even the Buddha couldn't teach anybody anything. So you can only point the way. So that's why the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is such a perfect teaching, because it's always saying, "Do you what are you doing?" Because does it, does it, in the long run, does it generate stress? So if you're getting stuck in something, even a good thing like you know meditation systems and techniques and. Does this make it so that you always want to be on your own, you can't stand being with other people? Well that's stressful isn't it? Does it give you the feeling that you've got to develop 14 different stages over 10 lifetimes before you can get enlightened? Well that's stressful isn't it? You know, does it mean that you, you, you're incapable of speaking to people because you, don't, you can't stand movement of thought? Well that's stressful isn't it? So when you see the meditation, does it fit into, into life? Can you live it? No. The Buddha didn't teach religion, philosophy or meditation. He taught a whole way in which you can, you can look at meditative aspects of it, you can look at philosophical aspects of it, you can look at religious or social aspects of it, but they all fit inside something bigger which is the eightfold path so when we start to see I mean I've known meditators who get so they come like meditation junkies you know <laughs> they've got to do another retreat close their eyes and get away from it all and you know and then you, you can get some interesting things happening but then you know you can't, then when you've got to come out of meditation you, know, you don't know what to do you can't integrate it. So it's, it's often just noticing. The more you do that, the less you're able to uh, you know, sustain it in your life. These are places where, or well, the more, particularly one of the things that uh, people who are, are prone to, the, what I call the four floods, sensuality becoming views and ignorance and, and for meditation often they, they've kind of put aside sexuality but they're very much caught in the flood of becoming Baba, Baba the thirst to become something and in in, for, in spiritual practice it means you always want to become an Arahant or become enlightened or become something other than, than this and of course it's not the, the case that there isn't the a development but development doesn't happen through following this energy of I've got to be this, I've got to be that. That stops steps in the way of the opening up that allows these Aryan realizations to occur. The Aryan realizations of stream entry and so forth are a natural development, but they don't occur through the desire to become them. You yeah. know? It's like, and this, this quality of becoming energy is like a compulsion to push, to get, to have is suffering the other one is views and again particularly in religious spiritual or philosophical circles you know, Buddhists can be quite peaceful until they start talking about Buddhism they're quite peaceful happy meditating and they start talking about Buddhism well, this is right and that's wrong this is pure Buddhism and that's, that's not pure Buddhism Thai Buddhism is better than Sri Lankan Buddhism. No, no, no. My teacher is better than your teacher. The real way is jhana. No, you don't need jhana, you need straight Vipassana. No, you do not have Vipassana without Samatha. No, you've got to have Samatha and Vipassana together. Yeah. No, you just need to be present, open awareness. Yeah. Suddenly the views start happening. And as the views start happening, energy rushes up into our heads. We start losing our balance. You know? So who's right? <laughs> who's right? No, he huh? He's suffering. It's suffering, isn't it? So you you, go, you you know you can only find what's right. Right doesn't happen in your head. some uh, happens in the heart. Somehow uh, happens when your mind is is got the whole mind. You feel present. When you feel emotionally open. When you thinking mind is quiet and clear, then samadhi happens, samadhi, 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 It doesn't happen through views. but this is where, so when we go into these strong views, you can feel at this present moment, how does that feel? Do you want to be with this for a long time? Is this doing you any good? You're finding yourself in conflict with other people, you find yourself holding on to something. There you go. You, know, you don't have to define what is a, you don't have to defend a particular position. Just do your practice. <laughs> and if your practice is true and good, and other people notice it. It's oh, pretty cool. You've know, you got anything you'd like to give me some advice? So it's always the case, you don't teach people, they ask you for some advice, that's the way the would it for. They didn't teach anybody. People would say, well you're really clear boy. tell me about this. They even offer something. That's the way it works. Yeah?
1: When sometimes during meditation, sometimes we 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 have pain. So sometimes the pain is so intense. We are trying to be soft, to be nice to the pain and looking at it. But it takes so long that it will not go. And then sometimes I think to myself, why should I suffer and look at pain and trying to let it go away? Although I'm trying to be nice with the leg, telling my cells, my nerves, my tissues, please be nice. But it still does not go. Cool. So I just want to know, Ajani, what is the
0: technique? <laughs> Thank you. Cut your leg off. Huh? <laughs> uh, well the pain physical pain is kind of inevitable that nobody can get away from it yeah. even the buddha he said there was only you know when he had this extreme physical pain in the later days of his life he said you know this is really difficult he didn't like it either he said he but what he could do was go to this very special, you know, mind ste- uh, state of consciousness where he didn't experience it, like a set state of kind of suppression of consciousness where he couldn't, couldn't experience it anymore. But he starts to come back to it. In pain. So it's, it's important not to make too much of a project out of, of deep and conquering pain. But just practice with it like as an experiment. You know, say well let's do Five minutes of it. Just see what happens to my mind. You know? See the resistances. See the complaining that goes on. See the the way my mind tries to do this and tries to do that, tries to do this and tries to do that. You know? See if you can just for a few moments just relax completely and say to the pain, "All right, you can have me." <laughs> you know, just let, it, let it let it run through you. You know. As you let it run through, you just try to feel that and then feel your breathing as if you're breathing into the pain, yeah. so that the, the mental resistance can stop. There are, what well, the Buddha also said, there's in terms of painful feeling. Most people experience two kinds of painful feeling. One is the painful feeling that comes into their bodies and the other is the painful fear that comes into their minds everybody gets these two arrows to stab them and he said the the arrow hunt only has one arrow but they still have the arrow that stabs them which is physical pain they still have that but they don't have the mental pain of agitation of resistance, of struggle and their ability just to allow the pain to do what it's supposed to do Feeling feels. It's not it has no harmful intention. Feeling is not trying to get you, it's just doing what it's supposed to do, this feeling. So you can say, Well okay, can I use this not to conquer pain, but to open up to a place of letting go. Yeah. Just allowing it to be there. Can I can I use this pain Teach me how to just completely surrender, yeah. and you say, "Well, three minutes of surrender." <laughs> and then maybe you start three, and you say, "Okay, I could do five. Okay, then I could do six you know? And so, because once you once you have that sense, you're not trying to make this a a success, then in a way that takes the pressure off. Now, also as a as a as a technique, you might suggest is you try to uh, visualize pain. It it does help to reduce it because of the sense faculties. The only the only aspect of the sense basis that experiences feeling is the body the eyes don't feel anything the nose doesn't feel anything so uh, So the body's everything that feels something so naturally when we experience something in our body we experience it through the through the touch uh, consciousness or the somatic consciousness, the sense of tension pressures if you visualise it it's like you're, you're, you're Moving that experience into the visual consciousness. The visual consciousness doesn't feel anything. So, the more naturally everything will swing, try to push you back into the body consciousness, because that's where it's occurring. If you keep trying to emphasize, what does it look like? Can you imagine, if you in your leg, these lines of fire running up and down your legs? Does it look like, is it white? Is it blue? Is it green? Is it red? Is it jagged? Is it smooth? Is it, is it like some great crushing iron thing, crushing your bones? Yeah. Is it for like fire? So you just keep visualising it. And in a way that what the visual consciousness does is it creates a sense of distance. Yeah. You know, if we, if we were looking in the room right now, then in one one sense what I can see is different colours and shapes, but what my visual consciousness does, it says, well, she's sitting five metres away from me, that's the back of the hall, this is the front. And yet really all I can see is shapes and colours, but visual consciousness creates distance. I'm here, you're there. Now, the more that we, one one of the advantages of that is you can get some sense of distance from the, the pain. You can witness it rather than just be underneath it, being stamped on by being burnt up by it. So that does help. Uh, also, if you breathe through it, like you breathe into your legs, if you've got pain in your legs, just as if your awareness will normally in pain tend to contract, go tight. When it goes tight, the mind gets agitated. This can spread spread your awareness come to the place where the uh, pain is maybe in one place as you, as, you, as you witness that you'll probably find an edge or the limit where it's no longer so painful and parts of your body feel really okay yeah. so you try to go to the to the edge of it where it's not really so intense and wide, wideness if you're almost uh, Spread it, spreading rather away, rather than contracting it. So that also helps to take down the um, energy of it. Yeah. As it contracts, the energy tightens up, and it's that tightening up of energy that your mind feels and feels defen- defensive about. If your energy can smooth out and relax, then the mind doesn't have to tighten up, and you feel. Strangely enough, you can experience moments, minutes, seconds of peace, with which is a good training, because naturally it may happen in our lives that we do, you know, on a situation we have to be paying for days, weeks at a time, so we might as well get used to it, <laughs> work with it, disparate everything.
1: Brothers and sisters, as we as time is getting on and we have lunch done, I think so we shall stop here. Shall we uh, say salut salut, brothers? Respect our gentlemen.